Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Please take up your Bibles. Uh, this evening we're in 1 uh, Kings chapter 16. Uh, uh, Struignani, one of our church members, will be uh, preaching uh, for us this evening. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. That's on page 298 in the large print, 351. We'll be reading uh, 16 from verse 29 to 17, verse 24. Let's listen to God's words to us. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zegub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Kerith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks 
that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. Well, good evening. Uh, please uh, turn back to 1 Kings if you've uh, not got it open. Now, if you're new or visiting us uh, this evening, the, the past few weeks at, at Trinity have been um, quite a joyful uh, couple of weeks for us. We've had uh, two uh, wonderful weddings of, uh, of members of our, our church family. And I think there's kind of been a kind of um, tangible kind of sense of, of joy and and delight, but both from the, the couples, but, but also just wider in the church families, and there just have been a real kind of joy for them. And, and that's kind of, that's all natural, isn't it, around weddings. There, there are days of, of joy and, and happiness, of uh, eating good food and, and spending time with uh, old friends. But I think we all kind of realize on those days that there is something uh, more beautiful going on than, than all of those great things. We, we recognize that the marriage itself is what's most beautiful about what's going on in that day. It's the promises made from uh, the individuals before God and, and to one another that um, it's what just makes the day so beautiful. It's it's promises to, to be faithful and to forsake all others and, and love one another in every season. And it, it's those words that they're so beautiful because they, they carry so much weight, don't they? You know, they, they are, they are life-altering and, and life-shaping promises. And that's the thing with words, isn't it? They are, they are immensely powerful promises are, are hugely significant. The word says uh, weddings are, are beautiful because they have deep meaning. They, they are not inconsequential words. They are, they are purposeful. 
And the passage we, we come to this evening is, is all about words. And it's all about words accomplishing their purpose. Now, we're, we're no longer talking about our words, but about God's words, about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is, is a kind of heartbeat of this passage that Will read for us. I mean, just look again, verse 34. According to the word of the Lord. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him. And again in, in verse 5, verse 8. And, and finally in verse 24. In various ways, God is accomplishing his purposes through his word. And it's the upholding of his promises that, that helps us to see what, what God is like. Now, this evening, we're, we're kind of diving into to 1 Kings. Now, hopefully, it's not too unfamiliar territory. We, we've just kind of finished 2 Samuel, and so hopefully the, the ground is a little bit familiar. But, but still, lots, of, lots has kind of happened since the end of 2 Samuel. You know, David has died. Solomon has, has come and went. The temple has been built, and the kingdom of God has been split in two Ten northern tribes um, have split away from Judah and Benjamin um, in the south. There's a, a new a northern kingdom that's kind of led by Jeroboam. And in the south, there is the tribes led by Rehoboam. And tonight, we're, we're arriving at a section that, that is giving a kind of assessment of the, the various kings that have followed them. And in particular, we're, we're coming to a section about King Ahab, who was one of the kings in, in the northern kingdoms. Now, Ahab kind of gets quite a lot of airtime here, but we quickly realize that he gets it for all the wrong reasons. And I think we're supposed to kind of sense the kind of negativity as soon as we hear who his father is. Look at verse 29 again. Ahab is the son of Omri, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, 22 years. Now, if we had kind of been in the story, kind of going week by week, I think we would realize as soon as the name Omri comes up, this is a kind of really bad omen for um, what Ahab's reign is going to be like. If we just look above our passage, verse 25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he did more evil than all who were before him. Very quickly, we see that, that the apple has not fallen very far from the tree. For Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord too. He continues in, in just the same ways. He too is, is walking in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He too is, is walking in the sins of idolatry. But it's not just that he's, he's like his father, is it? He's actually surpassing him in all the wrong ways. He did more evil than all who were before him. And the narrator kind of goes, you know, if, that, if that's not bad enough, if you want to know how bad he really is, then you need to get his wedding album out. You know, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it, of his choice of bride. Um, but it's not because she's um, 
not got the looks or, or abilities. But the reason it's such a negative picture of her is because she's literally carrying the name of Baal, of a false god. She is the daughter of a foreign king, King Ethbaal. And the verses here, they, they just kind of reek of Baal, don't they? Ahab served him, he, he worshipped him, and he even built an altar for him. The narrator is saying that these are evil days and they are under an evil king. So evil, in fact, that in Ahab's days, during his rule, Heel of um, Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Now, this isn't a kind of unrelated kind of bit of uh, trivia about construction work, but it's a kind of case in point of, of what was characteristic of Ahab's reign. Now, after the destruction of Jericho in the book of Joshua, Joshua himself had, had pronounced a curse upon anyone who would dare rebuild it. And the curse was, was deadly. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. I mean, you, you, you kind of read that and think, what sort of man kind of goes against this curse? And it's a man in Ahab's days. It's, it's a man under Ahab's rule. These days are evil, aren't they? They are so evil. There is no concern for God. There is government-led idolatry worship. There is widespread rebellion against his commands. And it just seems so 21st century, doesn't it? The Bible is, is not some dated book. It, it's not consigned to historical irrelevancy. No, no it's God's living words. And for all the talk of, of progress, our, our days are evil, aren't they? Just like Ahab's. But the goodness of this passage is that, that God is not blind to that. Is he? He, he's not idle to it. He, he brings his judgment on Heel's sons exactly as promised. Exactly as his word said. And it's, it's into that shroud of darkness that, that uh, God sends Elijah and he kind of sends Elijah with this kind of double judgment. Now, the first one is a bit more obvious. Elijah kind of arrives on the scene and he, he announces this drought. And on one level, this kind of uh, judgment, it's kind of drenched in a sort of glorious irony. And it, it's so deeply ironic because the God that Ahab has turned to, to Baal, he was, he was supposed to be the fertility God. People thought that he was the one that was in control of the weather. That if they called out to him or, or sacrificed to him, then he would abundantly bless them with a good harvest. And so God's response is kind of excellent, isn't it? It's as if he's saying, um, well, let's see who's, who's really in charge here. You know, he's kind of lay, laying down the gauntlet. He's, he's setting up a kind of rain competition and it's, it's kind of a beautiful, deep, uh, deeply ironic because, again, it's kind of a fulfillment of God's prior warning of judgment. Deuteronomy and Leviticus both kind of warn of this exact judgment. Here's what Deuteronomy says. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly of the good land that the Lord is giving you. The, the nation was warned, and now the Lord is, is enacting judgment, just as his word said. Now, the second judgment, I, I think, is slightly more subtle, but I think you can kind of trace it in, in the movements of Elijah. And it's, it's the idea that, that God's word is, is being removed from Israel. Now, it's important to remember that Elijah here isn't your kind of average Joe Christian. You know, he's, he's functioning here as an office bearer. He is a prophet and he's the bearer of God's words. But the Lord is, is sending him away from Israel. He goes from the center of power before Ahab to the brook of Kerith and then all the way to Zarephath. He goes all the way outside of Israel. As someone put it, that the heavens are, are telling the anger of God and the firmament proclaims the heat of his anger. And now there is a famine in the land, not just of bread and water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The days are evil. They are so evil that the Lord, he sees and he fulfills his certain word of judgment. But as we kind of continue to follow this story, we see that the Lord's word is certain, not, not just in judgment, but, but also in provision. And we see that in rather miraculous ways. Um, and firstly, we, we see that as God promises to sustain Elijah by the brook and the ravens at Kerith. Now, in its own right, I think it's, it's pretty amazing, kind of uh, birds uh, sustaining, bringing kind of meat and um, and food kind of morning by evening. I think particularly for us Aberdonians, like the idea of a bird bringing food rather than taking it is pretty hard to, to believe. Um, if you've kind of been here uh, early enough on a Sunday, you'll, you'll realize that the only thing that they bring is a job to clean the steps uh, every Sunday. And so it's, it's a kind of remarkable idea here, but I, I think it also kind of be ringing... Um, uh, bells in, in Elijah's head, because ravens bringing uh, food would be would be quite surprising. Because ravens themselves were were unclean according to law; they were kind of off limits as, as far as Israel's menu was concerned. And yet, it's it's that that the Lord chooses as His means of provision for His servant. But as the effects of, of the drought increase, the brook dries up, and God again chooses another rather remark, re, a remarkable means of provision. And this time, he chooses a widow from Zarephath, verse 8. Now, the idea of a widow in ancient Israel being a kind of source of provision would, would probably have sounded pretty barmy as well. I mean, widowhood was basically a dead-end street. It, it was an existence of dirt under the fingernails, of, of scratching out the kind of barest of livings. You know, I, I suppose it would kind of be the equivalent of parents turning up at their son's halls of residence on, on Christmas morning and expecting a, a meal to be provided. You know, if you want that, you're going to have to bring it yourself. <laughs> um, 
But that's, that's a means of provision the Lord chooses. There was no husband to provide for this woman, no husband to protect her. She was in abject poverty. And more than that, this was a widow that was in abject poverty in a time of drought. I mean, she's, she and her son are, are literally on the very brink of death. Notice that in the story again. Elijah comes asking for a little water and a morsel of bread. And look at her response, verse 12. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And yet, verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. And here's why. Because it was according to the word of the Lord. And that's why Elijah could trust it, isn't it? He did not trust in in the brook or the bird at Kerith, but he was trusting in the God of the brooks and the ravens. And now in Zarephath, he he is not trusting in flour and oil, but he's trusting in the God of the field and the orchard. And he is so faithful in his provisions, isn't he? Sometimes by, by the most extraordinary of means. I know some of you have have such stories to tell. Stories that as you, as you think about them, you, you just kind of well up in, in joy and thankfulness. And, and I kind of utter amazement that the Lord provided for you in that circumstance. But I, I suspect for, for many of us, and, and all of us most of the time, our experience isn't that of, of Elijah's or, or the widow. It's kind of that of those just living in the times, isn't it? We we live in evil days surrounded by the, the pollution of sin that, that ravages the spheres that we live in. We might not have experienced the extraordinary means of provision, but, but our confession is the same, isn't it? The, the ravens may, may never come for us, but the assurance that God will preserve us until he is done with us is, is ours too. No matter where you you find yourself this evening, that the Lord knows our needs better than we know them ourselves. His purposes are are far beyond our own understanding. And He provides just as He promises. Now, part of the beauty of, of this story is that running alongside Elijah's trust in the Word of God is is the widow's response to that same word. And the whole story serves as a rather amazing illustration of saving faith. Firstly, we've seen that this widow is absolutely helpless, isn't she? And into her desperation, it's then that she hears those words, do not fear. And they're rather shocking words, aren't they? I mean, this woman has perfectly good and and reasonable reasons to be afraid. I mean, she is facing imminent suffering and death. And yet she is still met with that rather frightening command, verse 13. Go and do as you have said, but first 
make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself. And that's just the most extraordinary of requests, isn't it? Asking a dying mother to to not give her last food to her son, who is also dying, but, but to give it to a stranger? I mean, what could possibly motivate someone to, to, to do that? And yet those, those shocking words, they are, they are made comprehensible because they, they introduce a promise that is, is big enough to, to swallow that terror. Verse 14, for, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. It's the call of faith, isn't it? The widow is called to stake everything, absolutely everything on these words. And the same is true for us today. It's faith, isn't it? We, we hear things before we see them. When it comes to the, the great truths about life and death, God tells us before he shows us. He informs us of things we, we cannot know ourselves and, and asks us to live for him even though we cannot see him. He asks us to put all our weight on his promises, to follow him at his word no matter where it leads us or takes us. And he sends us with the same assurance, doesn't he, that that as he promises, he does. And so, verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said. She believes the word of the Lord, and his word is sufficient for her. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. She goes from the very brink of death to to having provision for her needs. She goes from swearing, as the Lord your God lives, to trusting in the God, her God that lives. For God's words are, are certain in salvation as well as judgment and provision. And I think it's, it's remarkable, just taking a step back to, to consider you know, when this happens to this widow and her son. You know, given her testimony, she, she thinks this is her very last meal. She, she is literally about to die. What if Elijah arrived a week later, wasn't there, and, and he comes to find a dead widow and a dead son? But it's not what happened, is it? They were on the brink of death, but, but Yahweh has, has come and he has sought them and, and saved them. His grace it extended even for the dying who had, who had spent a life wanting nothing to do with him. And it's an incredible comfort, that, isn't it? You know, as we watch friends or grandparents or parents or spouses who, who just grow older and frailer and they just never seem to want to put their trust in Christ. Well, God has not given up on them yet. It's not over. 
He delights to, to even save them on the, on the brink. And so the prayers you, you've prayed day after day, year after year, they, they are not in vain. For God is, is still breaking the chains of captives, even the oldest of chains. Now, before we get to the, the next part of the story, there, there is a key detail that we, we've somewhat glazed over. It, and that is the fact that this widow is, is from Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, verse 9. Now, here's why that's significant. Just look back at chapter 16, verse 31. For, for that is the Baal-worshipping place where Ahab has found his evil queen from. This widow that's been saved has actually been rescued from enemy territory. And it's all rather surprising, isn't it? You know, the people that you would expect in this story to be faithful are actually the ones who God is most angry with. I mean, just consider again, the king of Israel, King Ahab, the king of God's chosen people, the one who should be following God's commandments and laws is is actually the one who is doing evil in his sight. And here we have a widow from Zarephath, from from the home of of Baal worship. And yet we find her placing her trust in the God of Israel. It's kind of a remarkable situation that God's word is, is rejected by Israel and it's welcomed by the outsider. And it's a story that, that Jesus picks up on in, in Luke chapter 4. And it's a story that, that as he told his hearers, they were so enraged that they wanted to kill him. Here's what he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus is saying that it was the same in his day as it was in Elijah's. Those whom you would expect to be following Jesus are actually the hypocrites who are rejecting him. And so the gospel is extended out towards the outsiders. And that's exactly what what happens in the book of Acts. And it's what's happening today. The gospel is is being embraced by the outsiders, by, by people like you and me. And I think that serves as, as both a warning and a reminder to us. Firstly, it serves as a warning because... God is not interested in our spiritual heritage or how we are perceived by others. But he's interested in our love for him and his words. And it's also a reminder to to never rule out the people whom God might just show mercy to. For God loves to show mercy to the people we'd often rule out. Perhaps that family member who who recoils at the mere mention of church. Or perhaps that colleague who's always going on the pride march every year. For maybe, just maybe, like the widow, they may be the ones who put their faith 
in the saving words of God. But the story, it doesn't end in verse 16, does it? Very quickly, from, from the Lord's provision, we're staring into the cold eyes of death in verse 17. No, no sooner have we seen the provision do we, do we see death kind of wrap its, its cold arms around the widow's son. And it's just so often the case, isn't it, with death? comes so unexpected and, and without warning. No matter how often we, we see it, we, we hate it, and we, we wonder why it's reared its ugly head again. And it, it's particularly tempting to think that here, isn't it, with the woman? She, I mean, she's a new convert. You know, surely what she needs is um, a good stable period in her life. She needs good fellowship and to read all the good Christian books. But instead, she, she's plunged headfirst into suffering. And she, she gets tied up in all the usual theological knots, doesn't she? She's, she's concerned that her suffering is directly as a result of her sin, verse 18. But look at Elijah's response. Instead of giving her an answer, she takes his son upstairs and, and cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he then kind of stretches himself upon the child three times. Now, it's not totally clear why Elijah does this, but, but he's clearly dependent here on, on God to act, isn't he? We see that in his second cry, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Well, here's, here's how one commentator kind of explain what's going on here. This kind of stretching out is a kind of symbolic act, a kind of acted out way of saying, let this lifeless body be as, as my lively body. And what's remarkable, here's the Lord listens, isn't he? And he, he does precisely as Elijah has prayed. Now, having recently uh, done our, our series in Second Samuel, the death of, of David's son, I'm sure, is fresh in, in lots of our, of our memories. And if you compare that with, with what's going on here, the differences are quite starting, startling, aren't they? I mean, just recall back to, to David's response. You know, he, he was absolutely steadfast in, in crying out to the Lord for his son until his son died. But, but as soon as his son died, he was accepting, wasn't he? He said, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? You know, can I bring him back again? So, so why is Elijah's prayer different here? Well, here's what one commentator said. He said, these questions point to what was at stake at this time. It was not simply the sadness of a grieving mother, although that is undeniable. We need to see the bigger picture. Baal had invaded Israel, and now the Lord had sent his servant into Baal's territory. What was at stake was the ultimate question. Who is God? The time had come for the Lord to display his unchallengeable superiority to Baal. And he does it in the most miraculous of ways, isn't he? He triumphed in awesome power over the greatest of all trials. 
He, he rescued this boy, not just from the jaws of death, but even after death had swallowed him up. He's not only claimed a widow from a kingdom outside of Israel, but he's crossed the border between life and death and to claim back her son. But perhaps, perhaps you're, you're not a Christian here this evening. You're just wondering what the significance of this really is. Well, can I encourage you to, to ask yourself, what are you trusting in this evening? Now, perhaps you wouldn't use that language of, of trust, but, but what are the things that you depend on, the things that you need to, to be successful or happy? And then ask yourself the question, how do those things deal with death? I want to suggest to you that, that whatever that thing or, or person is, they, they cannot deal with it because they do not have power over it. They do not have the power that God has over death. And look at him here. He is not subject, is it? He, he is Lord over it. He is the keys to, to death and Hades in his hands. And our minds, they just kind of instinctively go to the New Testament, don't they? To, to all the passages that, that kind of act as signs pointing towards God's ultimate victory over death. We, we think of Jesus raising a widow's son from death to life, of, of him raising from the dead Jairus' daughter of, and of his friend Lazarus. And we look beyond uh, what all of those stories point to. We look to a greater resurrection. For Jesus, he entered into a world of darkness, into a world of rebellion and hostility against him. He came to the helpless and the spiritually dead. He was not impressed by the hypocrisy of the religious, but he opened up the doors to the outsiders. He came to pronounce the judgment on those who would not repent of their wickedness. He came proclaiming that he is the bread of life, that, that whoever comes to him shall never hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. And he hung and he bled and he died on that cross to, to bear all our guilt, our shame, our idolatry. And he was raised three days later by the power of God, declaring to the world his perfect righteousness and providing salvation for all those who would come to him in faith. And there is nothing in all the world that can give assurance like that. We will all die a physical death unless Christ returns first. But those united to him by faith, those trusting in him, we, we will be raised again to everlasting life. And it's that what gives this widow from Zarephath hope, isn't it? Resurrection is a proof of the promise of God and it's what gives her her testimony in verse 24. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. And those words, they, they seem to faintly echo those, those words on that first Easter Sunday. 
as the woman approached the empty tomb. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Just as he told you. For God's words are certain. He judges, he provides, he saves, and he even has power over death itself. Amen.